Father, that such hearing would not be in vain. We pray that by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit, your word will go forth, your word will be heard, it will be received, and lives will be changed, transformed by your grace, even this very day. To your glory, to your honor, to your praise. In the name and for the sake of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you this morning to take the word of God and let us turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we will be considering this morning what I have entitled the priority and pursuit of peace. The priority and pursuit of peace. Matthew chapter 5. We will read verse 9. Only verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the peacemakers... For they shall be called sons of God. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient and certain word of the living God. As we return once again to our present studies in the Beatitudes, which cover the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, I have to concur with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said that there is nothing quite as searching as these Beatitudes. He explained this in two ways. First, by these Beatitudes, Christ is depicting and delineating the Christian man and the Christian character. Lloyd-Jones remarked that Jesus is obviously searching us and testing us, and it is good that we should realize that if we take the Beatitudes as a whole. But of course, realizing that Christ is testing us by these Beatitudes, we have to ask ourselves, how are we reacting to these tests? For example, do we see ourselves as poor in spirit? Do we know ourselves as spiritually bankrupt in all our sin as we would stand before God? Or what about how we respond to such a self-revelation? Do we mourn over our sinfulness? Do our hearts break over the fact that we are sinners and as such we have sinned against God? And with these alarming discoveries of our true spiritual state as sinners, are we repenting? That is to say, do we know ourselves to be a people who are meek before God? Is the state of our hearts yielding, pliant, and teachable to God's will and his design for our life? Have we given ourselves completely over to Christ in loving obedience to his lordship? The great point of these questions is simply to show how the Beatitudes call us out and force us to look deep within ourselves to see if a saving work of God's grace has actually taken place. The Beatitudes thoroughly search us in this way. Secondly, however, 
Lloyd-Jones went on to say that the Beatitudes remind us of certain primary central truths about the whole Christian position. First of all, the Beatitudes remind us that the Christian gospel places its primary emphasis upon being rather than doing. Lloyd-Jones unpacked this principle by stating, the gospel puts a greater weight upon our attitude than upon our actions. Its main stress is on what you and I essentially are rather than on what we do. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord is concerned about disposition. Later, he is going to talk about actions. But before he does that, he describes character and disposition. And that, of course, is essentially the New Testament teaching. A Christian is something before he does anything. And we have to be Christian before we can act as Christians. But second of all, in addition to the New Testament emphasis on having to be Christian before we live as Christians, Lloyd-Jones went a step further and declared, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. Now, what exactly does Lloyd-Jones mean by this? Well, let me quote him at length because this is a crucially important biblical principle that we must understand. Lloyd-Jones observed, From the standpoint of the Beatitudes, as indeed from the standpoint of the whole New Testament, it is an entire fallacy to think in any other way and to say, for example, to be truly Christian, I must take up and use Christian teaching and then apply it. That is not the way our Lord puts it. The position, rather, is that my Christianity controls me. I am to be dominated by the truth because I have been made a Christian by the operation of the Holy Spirit within. The Christian faith is not something on the surface of a man's life. It is not merely a kind of coating or veneer. No, it is something that has been happening in the very center of his personality. That is why the New Testament talks about rebirth and being born again, about a new creation and about receiving a new nature. It is something that happens to a man in the very center of his being. It controls all his thoughts, all his outlook, all his imagination, and as a result, all his actions as well. All our activities, therefore, are the result of this new nature, this new disposition which we have received from God through the Holy Spirit. So, in this way, the Beatitudes deeply search us and check us where it counts most in all that we claim as Christians. So, are we humble and meek before God? Do we mourn over our sin? Is there an insatiable craving in our hearts to live a life that is conformed to God's righteous standard? Are we a merciful people? Do we seek to relieve both the physical and spiritual suffering of other sinners? And what about our central aim in all of life? Does everything in our life take a back seat to our love and obedience toward Jesus Christ? Are we pure in heart, single mindedly devoted to Christ above all. You see, beloved, the answer to these questions 
will prove quickly if we are genuine Christians or just shallow professors. But this is how the Beatitudes search us. This is how they discover what is really there in our hearts despite whatever our claims may be. Now, this morning, we will turn our attention to the seventh beatitude, which Christ sets before us, recorded here in Matthew 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. From this text, I want us to raise three questions. First, what is a peacemaker? Second, how does a peacemaker pursue peace? And third, what is the honor given to a peacemaker? Let's consider each of these in turn. First of all, what is a peacemaker? As with all the Beatitudes, there has been the attempt by many to apply them in a natural sense to the natural man. In other words, there have been those people who have sought to completely divorce the Beatitudes from their spiritual content and gospel context. And by doing this, they tried to say that the Beatitudes are just descriptions of different personalities which can be found in different people. Hence, they claim there is nothing supernatural in the character described in these Beatitudes. But of course, we know that such a proposition is completely false. The Beatitudes are describing Eight different facets of the new nature received in the new birth by the power of the Spirit of God. Thus, each beatitude is a snapshot of the character of a true Christian. Now, why am I seeming to belabor this point? It is because of the, it is because of the beatitude which is before us this very morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There is perhaps no beatitude that has garnered more misunderstanding and misapplication than this one. The reason for this is due to this term, peacemakers. When people have looked at this term with no connection to its broader context and the rest of Scripture for that matter, they assume that a peacemaker must be those people who are naturally amiable, winsome, easygoing, always appearing to be nice to everyone. Or even better, and certainly more common, they assume a peacemaker is that person who marches by the beat of peace at any price. Peace at any price. This is your compromiser. This is your appeaser. This is the ultimate diplomat. This person, now listen to me, this person does everything it takes to avoid conflict even at the expense of the truth and righteousness. So when most people hear the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, this is the kind of person they have in mind. Someone whose natural disposition is universally nice and appeasing to everyone. Hence, they do not see anything supernatural in the character of this beatitude. 
To say it another way, to be a peacemaker is not a gift of God's grace, but the result of good upbringing with a genetic bent to be friendly to everyone. That's how a lot of people think about this beatitude. But this kind of thinking completely misinterprets blessed are the peacemakers. So we have to begin our exposition by asking what is a peacemaker? If the peacemaker is not that person who's just agreeable and obliging to all people in all circumstances, then who or what is the peacemaker? Well, to begin with, the peacemaker is a Christian. The peacemaker is a Christian. As with all the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers is a description of Christian character and disposition. This is a description of what God's omnipotent grace has worked in the new heart of that sinner he has chosen to save in Jesus Christ. There's nothing therefore natural about this disposition. We do not become peacemakers by natural birth, but by a supernatural birth. Namely, the new birth wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. So, so what then is a peacemaker? First and foremost, let's make this very clear right at the start. A peacemaker is a Christian. So if you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, the Bible says you're a peacemaker. This is who you are. This is who you are. But in the second place, Establishing that a Christian is a peacemaker, what are the peculiar characteristics of this disposition in a Christian? To see the Christian as a peacemaker, what should we see? Well, at the head of everything, we see someone who has come to be at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The peacemaking nature of a Christian is the result of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his atoning death by reconciling the sinner with God. And the application of what Christ did in this reconciliation is what the Holy Spirit produces as his fruit in the Christian's life. So a Christian displays the fact that he is a peacemaker chiefly because he has been brought by Jesus Christ to be at peace with God. Second of all, the disposition of a Christian as a peacemaker is a radically different worldview when it comes to peace. A radically different worldview when it comes to peace. A Christian sees that the true source of peace is God alone. And by this fact, he sees that the only hope for the world to have Real peace is to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Christian understands that peace is not going to come through politics, militaries, or national summits between world leaders. Moreover, a Christian knows that authentic peace has nothing to do with statesmanship, no matter how great, or with arbitration, compromise, negotiated truces or treaties. Nor will peace be brought by kings, presidents, prime ministers, diplomats, or international humanitarians. 
The point is, a peacemaking Christian does not think about peace the way the world thinks about peace. The world sees man as the answer to peace. Whereas the Christian knows it is God through his son Jesus Christ who is the only answer to vertible peace. Third of all, we see the peacemaking disposition of a Christian by the fact that he is not quarrelsome. He is not quarrelsome. In 2 Timothy 2.24, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy that a servant of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome. This is not the characteristic of those who serve Christ and thus belong to him. A Christian is not to be, therefore, argumentative, quick-tempered, a picker of fights, what we would say pugnacious. But rather, a believer in Christ is slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. He pursues then those things that make for peace. But lastly... The peacemaking disposition of a Christian is conformed to God's righteous standard. The disposition of a peacemaking Christian is conformed to God's righteous standard. This means that when a Christian is pursuing peace, it will not be at the expense of righteousness. It will not be at the expense of righteousness. Let me say this another way. Obedience to God will never be sacrificed for the cause of peace. Did you hear what I just said? Let me say it again. Obedience to God will never, never be sacrificed for the cause of peace. Peace is not what is ultimate for the Christian as a peacemaker. But God's glory, his honor, his holiness, that is what is ultimate. Therefore, as the Christian pursues peace, he does so only in conformity to God's will as revealed in God's word. In short, the peacemaking Christian is obedient to God's standard of righteousness. So then, a Christian, as a God-glorifying peacemaker, will never be comfortable with the axiom, peace at any price. This means that he will never be comfortable with either truncating the gospel of its hard truths or repressing it altogether from being proclaimed because, oh dear, perish the thought, someone somewhere might be offended. It's not how the peacemaker thinks. That is not how the peacemaker thinks. Furthermore, a Christian will never be comfortable with 
the demands of his family to pay them a greater love and devotion than he would to Christ his Lord. And I say that as all of you go after this to be with your families. Merry Christmas. (laughs) And finally... And this is big. What I'm about to say, this is huge. Okay? Pay real close attention. A Christian will not be comfortable with a mere truce in place of real reconciliation. Listen to that again. A Christian will not be comfortable with a mere truce in place of real reconciliation. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm going to add some layers here as you do go to your family gatherings. You're going to need this. What is a truce? You've heard the term, but what is it? A truce is nothing more than a temporary, and I emphasize temporary, a temporary cessation of hostilities. That's all a truce is. We could say it another way. A truce is nothing but a cold war. Just a cold war. You say, how's that? Well, let me explain. With a truce, nothing has been resolved as to why the division and strife has even occurred. But instead... A truce has been offered. However, the only problem with a truce, are you ready for this? The only problem with a truce is that it never reaches peace. It never reaches peace. All that a truce does is what all good southerners have been raised to do. Just brush the problems under the proverbial rug. Now that's good southern religion. Mama taught me that. Grandma taught me that. That's come down as the tradition. Turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the pink elephant that is suffocating us in the room and say nothing about it. And I... I can honestly say that for the majority of you, that's the world you live in. That's the world you live in. We're not going to confront the problems. We're not going to deal with them in the manner God has required. No, sir. No way. No how. And what's the result of this, beloved? What is the result of this? The result of this is that the strife and division goes underground where it does what? Does it remain neutral? No. (laughs) No. It goes underground and it grows and it festers until it breaks out all over again. And then when it breaks out, everybody's running for cover. Because what's come out under the rug is a monster 
no one expected to see. For a peacemaking Christian, they will never settle for a truce. Never. Never. What a Christian desires is real reconciliation, which not only seeks an end to the hostility, but openly confronts the issues that started it. So let's deal with the pink elephant, calling for confession and repentance of sin, and then mutual forgiveness. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Listen, here's what most Christians do not get about reconciliation. Okay, here it is. To reconcile is to establish a new relationship. Most Christians don't get that. When you reconcile with someone, you are establishing a brand new relationship. What does that mean? It means that whatever caused the division in the first place will never be repeated. It'll never be repeated. That is reconciliation by God's standard of righteousness. And this is what we will see in a Christian because God's grace has made them a peacemaker who conforms to God's righteous standard. Regarding this dynamic of the peacemaker, I want you to consider these very helpful and very sobering words from the pen of John MacArthur in his exposition of this text. Listen to what MacArthur said. The person who is not willing to disrupt and disturb in God's name cannot be a peacemaker. That's shocking. To come to terms on anything less than God's truth and righteousness is to settle for a truce, which confirms sinners in their sin and may leave them even further from the kingdom. Those who in the name of love or kindness or compassion try to witness by appeasement and compromise of God's word will find that their witness leads away from him, not to him. God's peacemakers will not let a sleeping dog lie if it is opposed to God's truth. They will not protect the status quo if it is ungodly and unrighteous. They are not willing to make peace at any price. God's peace comes only in God's way. Being a peacemaker is essentially the result of a holy life and the call to others to embrace the gospel of holiness. So what then is a peacemaker? When Jesus declared, blessed are the peacemakers, who is he describing? Above all, the peacemaker is a sinner who is humbled and broken over his own sinfulness, yielded in submission to God's will and design for his life, hungering after righteousness, merciful to others, and devoted to Christ with an undivided passion. In short, a peacemaker is a Christian.
But as a Christian, the peacemaker is at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, governed by a worldview that sees the only true source of peace is God and not man. And as a consequence of God's saving grace, the Christian pursues peace with all men, but not at the expense of righteousness, while he refuses to be abusive and argumentative, yet he will stand against anything that seeks to oppose God's word. This is the peacemaker. Well, understanding then the who, the what, the peacemaker is, let's move forward in our study to the more practical question. How does a peacemaker pursue peace? How does a peacemaker pursue peace? The answer to this question takes us to considering where the Christian lives on two different fronts. On two different fronts. First, to the world, and then second, to the church. To begin with, then, let's look at how the Christian pursues peace with the world. How do you pursue peace with the world, Christian? Since the world in its fallen state is under the wrath of God, living in rebellion against God, and is therefore at war with God, then the only right course of action a Christian must take in the pursuit of peace with the world is in seeking to bring sinners into a right relationship with God. To be more specific, a peacemaking Christian will strive at great cost to himself to bring the gospel of God's peace to sinners. In other words, it is only through evangelism that a Christian can rightly pursue peace with the world. In fact, evangelism is the most peacemaking act a Christian can carry out to the world. Think about it. Preaching the saving gospel of Jesus Christ promotes peace. Promotes peace. Calling sinners to repent of their sins and close with Christ by trusting Him alone as their only hope of reconciliation with God. Friend, that is the only means of bringing true peace to a sinful world. That is the only means. The reason for this is because man in his sin will never have peace with God or peace with others. Isaiah 48.22 says it very plainly. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. Why is this? It is due to the fact that where sin reigns, where sin reigns, there will only be strife and division and hatred. Sin does not produce peace. Does it? Sin is the enemy of peace. Therefore, man as a sinner has no power and no will to produce true peace. And since he is a slave to sin, he is thus an enemy of peace. So what hope does the world have for true peace? Where can the world find true peace? There's only one source. Only one source. It is what God has done by the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20 makes this incredible declaration. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Did you hear that? Making peace by what? By the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Here is the world's answer to peace, what Jesus Christ has done by the blood of his cross. For by the blood of his cross, what did he do? Jesus took upon himself our sin and rebellion against God. And God in turn poured out all his holy fury and judgment against our sin on his son. And there on the cross, God judged our wickedness in full so that through Christ as our substitute, we would be reconciled to God, receiving his mercy and forgiveness for all our sins. Therefore, by the blood of Christ's cross, peace was made. But how is this sinful world going to know that this is the only hope for anyone to have true peace? How's the world going to know? The church of Jesus Christ must proclaim his gospel of peace to the world. As Christians, we must show ourselves as peacemakers to the world by telling them the truth of what God has done in Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. In other words, to say it really simple, we must evangelize sinners. This is how we pursue peace with the world. Concerning this fact, Sinclair Ferguson made these much-needed observations. Ferguson wrote, Hidden logically in what Jesus says about peacemakers is a recurrent thought in the New Testament. Evangelism is not an option something in which a few members of every fellowship are expected to show an interest. Evangelism, in whatever form, is an integral part of being a Christian. How can this be deduced from what Jesus says? Very simply, those who make peace are called sons of God. Since all Christians are sons of God, all Christians are expected to share in the work of peacemaking. That is not to say we are all equally well-equipped for all aspects of personal evangelism, it means only that all of us share in the responsibility of living lives and speaking words that contribute to the conversion of others. Paul saw that as one of the debts we owe to the world, the Christian church would be healthier and happier, being more conscious that we are sons of God if it shared the apostles' conviction. So, to the world, to the world, a Christian pursues peace by promoting the gospel of peace. Evangelizing sinners with the truth and call to salvation in Jesus Christ. But, this is not the only front where a Christian pursues peace. The second place where peacemaking is carried out by the believer in Christ is within the church itself. Within the church itself. This is the mandate of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Which commands us as Christians to pursue peace with all. That is all within the church. Okay, that's, that's the target audience. 
pursue peace with all within the church and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, if there is a command of God, and listen carefully to this, if there, if there is a command of God that we pursue peace among ourselves as fellow Christians, then the obvious implication is that life in the church is not always going to be peaceful. That's the implication. Life in the church is not always going to be peaceful. But <clears throat> if there are those times in the church where peace is, peace is under siege, as it were, the only reason for such times is due to the outbreak of unrepentant sin. Where sin is allowed to run rampant and unchecked in the church, there will be no peace. None whatsoever. And sadly and tragically, this is the testimony of many churches in our day. There are so many churches known for their strife, known for their bitterness, known for their divisions and bickering, but they're never known to be a place where peace rules and reigns. That's not the reputation they have. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand, listen, this is not normal. This is not normal. It is not how God has intended his people to live together. God's will for how we walk together as his church is that we walk together in peace. But of course, the practical question before us is, well, how do we do that? How do we pursue peace within the church? I will offer four courses of action that we must never compromise. We must never compromise. First of all, we need to intentionally put to death the enemies of peace. We must intentionally put to death the enemies of peace. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, 29-31, we're given clear instructions on what we must get rid of if we would have peace in the church. What does that text say? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Based on this one passage in Ephesians, if we are to pursue peace within the church, then we need to deliberately guard our conversation from talk that tears down rather than builds up. This means that our conversation needs to be proactive in promoting gracious words that would not grieve the Holy Spirit. These would have to be words that will call us to Christ and advocate a greater obedience to Him. However, if we're to carry this out in full, then we must rid ourselves of those sins that are especially against the peace of the church. Like what? Like bitterness. Like wrath and anger. Like clamor, slander, and malice. These sins have got to go. If we are to have peace in the church, 
Look, you cannot be holding a grudge or seething with hostility or publicly defaming someone's character or wishing nothing but the worst harm on their well-being and then expect to have peace in the church. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. All we have with these sins unchecked and unrepented, all we have is a church in total chaos. Hence, we have to intentionally put to death the enemies of peace. But second of all, we have to confront and correct fellow Christians who are causing division in the church. Confront and correct fellow Christians who are causing division in the church. This is the great teaching of Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20, where our Lord gives an unmistakable mandate for what is called corrective church discipline. This is where for the sake of both peace and purity in the church, a professing Christian is lovingly called to repent of their sin and sought to be restored to the fellowship which their sin has divided. However, however, Jesus teaches us if they refuse to repent, that they're to be formally excluded from the fellowship of the church and treated like unbelievers since the fruit of their conduct contradicts a true conversion to Christ. That's exactly what our Lord means when he says, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Concerning this process of church discipline, John MacArthur, to quote him again, gave these sound words of wisdom and sobriety. MacArthur said, The fact that taking such action often stirs up controversy and resentment is no excuse for not doing it. If we do so in the way and in the spirit the Lord teaches, the consequences are his responsibility. Not to do so does not preserve peace, but through disobedience establishes a truce with sin. And when you look and you examine how many churches completely ignore Matthew 18 regarding corrective church discipline, I'll quote to you from the great Baptist theologian of the 19th century, John L. Dagg. When discipline goes, Christ goes with it. How many churches have made a truce with sin because they refuse, they refuse to practice biblical, corrective church discipline? A myriad of churches, absolute myriad of them. Third of all, we must uphold the sound teaching of God's word from the pulpit to the pew. Not only will relational sins disturb the peace of the church, but false doctrine, false doctrine will work just as hard to destroy the harmony and fellowship of God's people. This is what happened to the Galatian churches as they were invaded by false teachers called Judaizers who were literally turning them away from the true gospel to a fictitious gospel. Division and strife had erupted in these churches due to the unsoundness and falsehood of these pretentious teachers who opposed 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in response to this chaos, what did, what did the Apostle Paul do? What did he do? What was his course of action to restore peace to the Galatian churches? He wrote them a letter upholding before them once again the truth of the gospel. The sound doctrine of the saving gospel was God's divine answer for these divided churches. And the same is true for us today. If we're to pursue peace in the church, then we must be faithful in preserving the sound teaching of God's word. Any teaching that would oppose the word of God must never be tolerated if the church would know true peace in its midst. Finally, we must walk in love toward one another as Christ has loved us. We must walk in love toward one another as Christ has loved us. Jesus commanded us to this very end in John 13, verses 34 and 35. But one of the great benefits of loving one another in this way is what Colossians 3.14 tells us, that to clothe ourselves in love for one another, listen to this, is what binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what Colossians 3.14 says. So if we're going to pursue peace within the church, then we must actively, intentionally love one another as Christ has loved us. Well, what does that involve? It involves patience, kindness, humility, forbearance, meekness, compassion, forgiveness, and all I'm doing is just reciting Colossians 3, 12 through 13 there. But where these graces of Christ are strong, where these graces are strong and growing, there will be godly love. And with godly love, we will know together true peace. Well, having unpacked what a peacemaker is, and how a peacemaker pursues peace, let's consider very, very briefly our final point of study. What is the honor given to a peacemaker? What is the honor given to a peacemaker? Returning to our text in Matthew 5, 9, our Lord tells us that his peacemakers shall be called, what? Sons of God. The great badge of honor, if you will, that is worn by every Christian due to their peacemaking disposition is that God qualifies them as his sons. And the fact that they are identified as sons of God indicates that a believer in Christ is someone whose life manifests God's life since they carry out God's actions in the world. And in this context, the actions of God are related to those of peace. Hence, Christians are called sons of God, because by God's divine grace, they magnify God's peace to the world. So, in conclusion, let me ask you, ask you the obvious question. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? Understand this. 
if you're not a peacemaker, then you cannot be a Christian. If you're not a peacemaker, you cannot be a Christian. Peacemaking is a hallmark of the sons of God. God calls his children peacemakers because that is what they are. That is what they are in both their words and deeds. So, again, I ask, are you a peacemaker? Do you strive to promote peace to the world through personal evangelism? This can be done in a variety of ways. Are you praying for God to save sinners? Are you praying for God to send forth his workers who will witness to sinners? Are you making yourself available to a verbal witness to sinners? Do you pray for opportunities to spread the gospel? And do you take those opportunities? Are you promoting real peace to this world that is perishing in sin? Are you promoting the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to others? And what about in relation to the church? In relation to the church, where we are right here, right now. Do you actively pursue peace within the church? Let's start with your heart. Is your heart clean of bitterness? Is your heart clean of anger, wrath, envy, strife, malice, clamor? Can you honestly say right now, that there is no one in the church you're holding a grudge against. Can you honestly say that? God knows your heart. I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. So don't lie to him. So can you honestly say right now there's no one, no one I'm holding a grudge against. And if, if perhaps there is a grudge against someone, are you nursing it or killing it? Are you nursing it or killing it? Have you, have you settled for a mere truce with a fellow believer? Or are you seeking reconciliation? What are you doing to actively pursue peace within the church? We are commanded... In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, which is where I'm going to be in two weeks, for my annual teaching at the beginning of every year on keeping Christian unity. And so in two weeks, I'm going to be in this very text. But as a precursor, we're commanded in Ephesians 4, 3 to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So... I'll ask you today, and in two weeks, I'm going to ask you all over again. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you a peacemaker? But finally, finally, I have to ask this question, and this is really, this is really the most important, the greatest question that I can close this entire sermon with today. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? Why is that the most important question? Because that's where peacemaking begins. That's where it all starts. 
So do you know yourself right now, do you know yourself as trusting in Christ alone as your only hope to be reconciled with God? Settle this today. Settle it today by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our holy, righteous, heavenly Father, the God of peace, our great God of peace, we exalt you. We praise you, Lord. We say with the psalmist, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And we thank you for the channels of grace that you have blessed us with this morning and most especially the preaching, the teaching, the exposition of your holy word. And in the light of what we have heard just now concerning the truth about the peacemaker. Father, we plead with you as your people that by the work of the Holy Spirit in the light of what your Holy Word commands and calls us to be and to do as peacemakers, we earnestly pray for greater grace in sanctifying each one of us to grow in that peacemaking character. To put to death the bitterness and the anger, the grudge holding that we may have in our hearts towards others. To stop settling for a truce with those, Lord, that we need instead to be reconciling with, making peace with. We pray, Lord, that there would be a greater repentance in all of us by the work of the Spirit for the sake of Christ where we will more fervently pursue peace with the world by the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the body of Christ in building each other up more in the faith more in Christ and learning better to walk together in peace with each other. These things we hold before your throne of grace now for the sake and the honor of the Lord Jesus. And in his name we ask, amen.